Amen. Thank you so much for being with us tonight, church. Thank you for praying with us. Uh, and if you have a Bible, I'd like to open, ask you to open up to two different places. Uh, we'll begin our time together in John 13, and then we'll turn over to 1 Corinthians 9, which is where we are continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. Uh, but we'll uh, begin with a little bit of a read from John 13. Um, we reference this chapter a lot. We, we, we actually looked at it in our small groups Sunday night. If you weren't with us, um, it won't be that much of a repeated, uh, uh, retreaded ground. Uh, but we referenced this at the end of the last week's message. I feel like it's a good place to start for this week. Um, and, and I'll explain more about that in a minute. So, so last week, uh, we learned that there's a difference between what appears right and what's actually righteous. That we, there's a difference between uh, what we feel is right and what we may have a right to do and a right to say. There's a difference between right and righteous. We learned and we talked extensively about the difference between a life that's focused only on knowing and a life that prioritizes loving. Uh, and what we discovered is that it, the, the one major difference, the, the one major difference between religion and Christianity is that religion is only concerned about what's right and religion is only concerned about what we know and how we, you know, uh, put our, project our knowledge over others. But Christianity is about what does it mean to be righteous and what does it mean to be loving? And that's the major difference between religion and Christianity. In religion, in, in, in any religion, and, and we talk about religion a lot, and the reason why we do is because there's a whole lot of it out there. And it creeps its way into churches and it tries to wear the guise of Christianity, yet it could not be farther away from Christianity. In religion, all that matters is the individual in their case before God, their stance before God. In religion, it's up to you to go to God and say, God, this is what I've done. This is what I know. This is who I am. I hope I am judged on the side of that pleases you. But, but that's not Christianity. Christianity, there's more to Christianity because Christianity is not an it. It's not an organization. Christianity is about a person. It's about Jesus. It's about our Savior, God in flesh. And, and Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus. He stands before God for us. And we are in him before God. But the, but the thing about having a relationship with Jesus is we belong to him. We are in him. We are a member of his body. And that is the whole theme of 1 Corinthians. It's that there is a body of Christ. We are a member of it, but there are others in the body with us, right? And that's why Paul is writing this book, to us as a member of the body of Christ. And, and that's where the difference really comes in, in terms of our daily practical lives, because there are many members in his body, and there are room for many more members in his body. We, the church, we are his body. Therefore, it's not just about me. It's not just about you. And, and the reason why I preach this so much is not because I think y'all don't understand this. It's because I am so often ignorant to this. And I am so often uh, uh, you know, oblivious to this. I, I know that it's the truth, but my flesh does not want to focus on this. But Christianity, the church, we are the body of Christ. It's not just me and God. It's us and God. It's you and I and God. So it's not just me presenting my case to God. It's me alongside, accountable for, and connected to all of you and all the yous in the world as we stand before God. 
And, and, and the reason why all this comes into crystal clear view when we look at Jesus is because Jesus lived a selfless life. If there was one man who ever lived who had every reason to be selfish and to cater to himself and to do for himself and to lift up himself for himself, it was Jesus. But what did Jesus do with his life? He lived a selfless life. And what did he say to you and me? He said, follow me and walk Walk in my pathway. Jesus put aside his rights and out of an overflow of his righteousness, he loved others. He loved you and he loved me and he loved us foremost and always. Now the quintessential text that speaks louder than perhaps any biblical text tells, uh, tells us as much. And that's why you hear me reference it a lot. During the Easter season, we look at it a lot. We looked at it again this past Sunday evening, if you were with us. But the, the text that speaks louder than any Bible text, any other biblical text, all the Bible is inspired, all the Bible is important, but there are some passages that just speak a little louder. And I would think, and I, I believe, and, and again, this is just me, others may disagree, but I believe that John 13 might be the loudest text in the Bible, as in if God is talking to his people. Now, maybe there's another chapter that speaks to non-Christians, but if there's one chapter in the Bible that looks at you and me as members of the body of Christ, as people who are called to be like Christ, John 13 is that chapter. We're not going to read through this whole chapter, but I want to, I want to spotlight some verses that we often spotlight uh, uh, again and again in our Bible studies. Uh, I, I want to talk about a couple of verses here, remind you and kind of reignite those, those memories and those thoughts that you already have about this chapter, and then we'll uh, segue back into what is Paul talking to us about in 1 Corinthians. So if you're familiar, John 13, they're having the Lord, they're at, around the Passover table, uh, they're, they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, Jesus just explained to them, this is my body, this is my blood, this is what I'm doing for you, pouring myself out for you, they still don't get it, they start arguing over who is greater, who's more important, who's going to have more power whenever the kingdom comes, they're completely oblivious to what Jesus is telling them. And John, who has, is privy to what Jesus is thinking because God told him and inspired him, John gives us a rare insight to what Jesus is thinking. And isn't it amazing to know what God is thinking or what Jesus is thinking? This is one of the few chapters in the Bible, the few passages in the Bible where we hear what is going on in Jesus' head. So John 13 starts like this. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour was coming, his hour was coming, that he would depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so here's what John tells us, that Jesus is at the table with his brothers in Christ, with his disciples, with his family that he has lived with for three years, right? He's around the table with these guys. He knows their thoughts. He knows their minds are not on the right thing. They're arguing over who's going to be greater. They're wanting power for themselves. They are worried about how they're going to come out of this with more and more and more for themselves. And what's on his mind is, I'm about to go back to my father. I came, the word became flesh. I'm going to go into heaven as a man and sit on the throne above all thrones. This has my, always been my pathway. It's always been my destiny. He knows he's about to leave this world. And it says that he loved his own to the end. You can read that two ways that he loved them to the very last moment with them, or that he began to show them the full measure of his love. That this 
following passage reveals the love of Jesus in a way that has never been revealed before, that would only be further uh, manifested on the cross. That he loved them, the word in there can also mean to completion, to the very fullest. So he loved them to the fullest that he could love them. And it goes on to say that supper was over. The devil had put in the heart of Judas to betray him. So again, he knows that he's about to leave. He knows that the enemy is at the table with him. And again, we hear John tell us that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God. So John wants us to know that Jesus is thinking about who he is, where he's from, where he's going, and he is large and in charge. He owes nobody anything. He is completely in control. He can do whatever he wants to do. He could call angels down to serve him and lift up his throne on earth. But what does he do? And why did John tell us what Jesus was thinking about and what Jesus was aware? Because he uses that to contrast what happens next. He uses that to make what happens next that much more emphasized. He rises up from supper. He lays aside his garments. He took on a towel, girded himself. He poured water into a basin and he began to wash their nasty, grimy feet. Right? That Jesus did the thing that nobody would have ever expected him to do. He rolled up his sleeves, he put on a towel, he got on his knees, and he washed their feet that a servant should have been hired to do. But he did it instead because that is who Jesus is in the clearest of all pictures. He came God in flesh, but he, he took off his glory. He stepped off his throne. He put on skin and he got on the ground and he washed our feet as in he came to wash us clean from our sin. But not only did he wash us of our sin, he took on our sin, became our sin and suffered for us so that we might be saved. That's the gospel, right? If you want to see a clear picture of the gospel, I can't show you one. He got off of his throne. He got off of the master's seat. He got on the ground, washed their feet. And then they, they didn't know what he was doing. They're like, what are you doing, Jesus? This, and they knew it was an insulting thing for him to do. They knew it was a demeaning thing, a degrading thing for him to do. And they tried to stop him. And he says, y'all cannot, you can't stop me. I've got to do this. This is who I am. But down in verse number 12, he made it very clear. He's asked them, do you know what I have done to you? And they didn't know what he had done to them, and they really were upset that he did it. But not only was that who he was, but what does he say in verse 14? If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So not only is this who I am, this is who you must be. Do you see that? This is who you must be. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Can it be more clear? It can't be, right? And all the people who have different opinions as to what it really means to be a Christian and what's the most important thing to do as a Christian, what does Jesus do here? He makes it crystal clear. I have given you an example. You should do as I have done to you. A servant is no greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you do these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
As in, happy are you? Hey, I'm not asking you to do something that's going to be a burden or going to be a pain or going to be something that's not, not an enjoyable thing. It may not seem like something to be, that would be enjoyable. Serving people, loving people, uplifting others instead of yourselves. That doesn't seem fun. But Jesus said, if you know me and you become like me, you will know a life that is more blessed than anything else. And then he caps off this passage at the end of this chapter. And again, y'all should know these verses by heart because I preach them so much. And I preach them so much because I read this chapter so much because I know how important this is. He says at the end of the chapter, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this they will know, by this All will know, not by your knowledge. You're not going to impress anybody or make a difference in anybody's heart by how much you know. Even though I love, I love to tell people what I know because it makes me feel better and it makes me look better. And I love reminding people of what I know because, hey, that's that's something I have on some people. I'm not bragging to y'all. I know things and I love to tell people about things. But Jesus says that's not going to impress people and that doesn't impress God. By this they'll know that you're mine if you love one another. So, here's the thing. Religion rolls its eyes at this. Religion says, oh, that's going too far. Religion says, oh, that's opening the door for the social gospel. I mean, you're, you're calling us to do unnecessary good for people that we shouldn't even feel responsible for. I mean, how far do you go with love? How far does that take us? I mean, are you not opening a door that makes us feel like we've got to always got to do more, do more, serve more, serve more, love more, give more? I mean, Jesus, you know, are you asking us to do that? But Christianity says that's a good problem to have. That's a good you know, problem to have to solve because this is God's heart and this is who we are as the body of Christ. And here's why this is so important to be distinct between religion and Christianity, what it means to be a Christian compared to what it means to be in other religions. Because left to ourselves, left to ourselves as in if it's just me, if it's just me and my own way of trying to manipulate God or twist God's heart to get him to think I'm always doing the right thing or knowing the right stuff, left to myself, I will always be motivated by self and for my own self only, and I will always lead into sin. If, if, if Christianity is just another religion, and people treat it like another religion all the time, if it's just me and God, I can do whatever I want as long, can I, as long as I can present something to God, if I'm left to myself, I will reimagine God in my own image. I will make God who I want him to be, and I will slowly kind of back him into a corner where basically I can do whatever I want to do because God is just me and God and nobody else is, is observing me. Left to myself, I reimagine God, and then I redefine you. And I only see you for the object you are as someone I can use and how you might conserve me. And that's what Christianity saves us from that. Christianity makes us see that we're a part of a family, we're a part of a race that God loves, that we are accountable for and to each other. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's explaining this brand, brand new idea of church because they had come from pagan religions. They had not ever been a part of something like this before, and none of us have either other than being in church. Paul warns them of what it looks like if they don't anchor their faith in Christ and in their placement and participation in the body of Christ. He, in, in Corinthians, addresses how we interact with each other, how we respond to being sinned against, and how we refuse to allow our differences to drive us apart because of the damage it will do to the body. 
We all talked about this for weeks, about the morality and sexuality that Corinthians gets into, how our bodies belong to Jesus. And what we do with our bodies and what we do with other bodies directly affects the greater body, that my body and your body belong to his body. So I can't do with my body whatever I want, and I can't, me and you can't do with our bodies whatever we want, together or apart, because we belong to his body. And without his direction, we will destroy our body and his body. So that's why Paul spent several chapters talking about sexuality, men and women, and how we're uniquely made, but how our bodies are reflecting the glory of God and how what we do with them and what we do with those around us will either reflect or disgrace his body. And he goes on to say not just about the physical body or the, what we do with our physical bodies, but in chapter 8, Paul comes at us and it says, and says, if we only act from a place of what we know and what we consider right and what we deem to be our rights, we are bound to hurt people and we are bound to do wrong to others. So rather than saying, I'm right, therefore I can do whatever I want to do, I'm right, therefore I must be righteous, we must first consider what the righteousness of God would have us to do and then act from there. So when it comes to interacting with our neighbors, our brother and sister in Christ, those that have not yet become a part of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 challenges us to adopt a new approach, the Jesus approach that we just read about in John 13. The, the approach that John writes, but that Paul writes about in Philippians, that says, let each of you not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, because this is the mind which was in Christ Jesus. So, before I think anything about you, before I say anything to you, before I do anything that may affect you, the question I must ask is not, what do I have the right to do? What can I be justified in doing? The question I must ask every single time before I think about you, talk about you, talk to you, or do anything that might affect you, the question I must ask, what is the righteous thing to do? What is the Christ-like thing to do? Not what do I have the right to do? What can I get by with? What is the righteous thing to do? What reflects the righteousness of God? And of course, we, we know what the righteousness of God is, the love of Jesus. The, in the example that Paul gave us in chapter 8, he said that he would abstain from eating meat for the rest of his life if meat offended people. Now, we talked about the extent to the extent of what that meant and why that was offensive and what the conflict was. And Paul said, I think it's silly that people are offended by people eating meat. But you know what? If that is a hurdle between me and sharing the gospel with them, I would soon never eat meat again. Paul, you're crazy. You're, you're going too far. He says, no, 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 no. You're not going far enough because you're living according to your belly and not according to your heart. Uh, that, that's what he was arguing. Now, I want you to look, listen to what the, James, the brother of Jesus, proclaimed at a, the first big church meeting, the first big business meeting, when some of the Jews were angry that the Gentiles were joining the church, but they weren't becoming Jewish first. They weren't adopting the law first. Peter stands up at the meeting and says, you mean the law that we never kept? You mean the law that couldn't save us? That law? Peter and Paul both testified that they had been saved by grace and that only grace would save those who remain lost. So they must extend grace to those they've been sent to. And, and then James, the brother of Jesus, said this powerful, amazing statement. 
It is my sentence. I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult. There's a lot, there's plenty of difficulties already in sin and in the world. We as a church must not make it more difficult. We must not put obstacles in the way of those who are beginning to turn towards God. Hey, let's make sure that we treat people well. And let's make sure that we always value people's God-given, God-ascribed worth so that, they, so that we can clearly communicate and effectively communicate the gospel. And, and here's where we're going tonight. Let's make sure that our biggest concern, that when we, look, when, we, we, when we are considering lost people, when we are interacting with lost people, when we're thinking, how can we make an impact with people who do not know Jesus? Our biggest concern must always be reaching them and sharing Jesus with them and winning them to Jesus. What do we got to do to ensure that we have the best chance of reaching them, sharing Jesus with them, and winning them? Let's make sure that our biggest concern and greatest motivator is not our ego, because you'd be surprised that it's easy to get those things to mixed up. And you think, how, why in the world would I, would I mix up sharing Jesus with, you know, for his glory and, and, for my, and, and then wanting to get my own ego in there? Because our ego is what causes it to all fall apart. Listen, church, it's so important, especially in our world today, where there are more and more people completely unfamiliar and unexposed to Christianity and its values. The world is as unchurched as it has ever been since the beginning of the church. How we present truth to them and how we extend grace to them is vital. This section of Corinthians is about making sure that we are rightly postured and positioned in our mission. And and, and let me me explain the difference to you between going from a knowledge first basis to a love first basis. This is the difference in a soldier walking into the most hostile battle and a doctor walking into the most vulnerable ER. That if we, go, if we live from a place of this is what I know is right and I have the right to do this and to say this and be this and I have the right to say to somebody else what I think you know, is wrong about them and I don't regard what they may think or feel or respond, this is the difference in living by that perspective or hey, what does love require of me? The two differences or the two extremes, one is like a soldier walking into a battlefield, a battlefield, a a base or a camp, and the other is a doctor walking into an ER. They're opposite of streams, right? One, there's a soldier going to kill, and then on the other, there's a doctor going in to heal. Which do you want to be? And which do you think is going to make the difference? Are we here to set more fire to an already burning world or are we here to put out the fire and bring relief? Which only comes from the water of life that we have in our tanks. Don't you see why this is so important? Because if we treat this mission field like we're a soldier with a gun going into a hostile battlefield, no wonder we gun everyone down. No wonder no one even is left standing to share Jesus with because we've already condemned them all. But if we treat this like a hospital and we're the physician with the remedy and we're going into a place where people are so, so, so unwell, of course they're at the hospital. That's why. But if we don't properly attend to them and properly apply the remedy, what chance do they have? 
So that's why Paul would make such a radical statement over in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, chapter 8, if you'll turn over there. That's why Paul would make such a radical statement that if food makes my brother to stumble, if food offends my brother, I will never eat meat again. See, you might not, and, and again, I don't. I, I, if somebody says, hey, that offends me, you shouldn't do that, or that stump, that's a stumbling block for me, I, I, I roll my eyes and think, well, you know, get over it. I mean, what's wrong? You know, you, you, don't, you, don't you know? They don't know, right? Don't you know better? Of course they don't know better. They don't know, right? If somebody told me something like that, and again, we, 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 there's so many ways this can be taken in our world today. But here's where we have to understand this as a Christian. Paul was willing to say, if something as inoffensive to me as eating meat, if that makes somebody stumble, I care more about building them up than I do potentially knocking them down. Now again, not everybody has that heart. Jesus says we should. And if we don't, we better be on our knees praying to get it. But we're going to see him continue to build up this passion in chapter 9. So in these first seven verses, Paul's going to talk about how committed he was to reaching people for Jesus. How willingly he was going to give up his rights in order to reach people. He's doing this to make his command in the previous chapter that much heavier. As in, hey, look at what I've done to reach people. What's your excuse? What might you can accomplish if you're willing to just give a little bit like I've given a whole lot and have an influence over somebody. So listen to how he, he goes on. And again, remember, this is one continuous passage. So the thought didn't stop in verse 13. It continues in chapter nine. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Are, are you not my work in the Lord? As in, Did I not start your church and build you all up? And if I am not an apostle to others, yet double less I am to you, doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord, as in your proof of it. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, like the brother of the Lord in Cephas, as in they have wives? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to the war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends to a flock and does not drink of the milk. Now, let me explain what's going on here. Paul is saying, we have laid down every right we have for the sake of the gospel. And he's trying to say to them, we didn't have to do this, but we chose to do it. Again, you might think, well, is he bragging? He's trying to talk to a very specific group of people who are trying to tear him down. And let me explain who those are. On top of trying to get the Corinthians to understand what they can accomplish by being humble and what they can accomplish by loving people, he's also defending his case against people who were very critical of him. And let me introduce this group to you. They're called the Gnostics. Silent G, uh, of course, you can tell that. They're called the Gnostics. The Gnostics, Gnostic or Gnosis is a Greek word that means knowledge. If you read the New Testament in Greek, and of course, I'm sure you do every night, if you ever read the New Testament in Greek, the word Gnosis is wherever you see the word knowledge. And that's what he used back in chapter 8, verse 1, where he says knowledge puffs up. He's talking to a group of people who were a part of this kind of sect or not really a denomination, but they were kind of a, a group within each church, a group of people who were trying to push out other people. The Gnostics, uh, they, they were basically a group of people that thought, hey, I know the church just started, but we really need to seal the doors and we really need to secure the doors because we don't need to let a lot of people in that don't know what we know. 
And a lot of the Gnostics, most of them were Jewish converts to Christ who thought they knew more and thought they had all the knowledge and they were wary of letting Gentiles in who just were never going to know all that they know, who were never going to be as holy as them. They were never going to have all the right songs in their head and all the right verses on their tongue and all the right traditions that they, they knew. These people, they, the Gnostics were, were obsessed with having control over everything. We all need to look the same and act the same and we be, need to be careful careful about letting people in and being associated with people that don't know what we know because they might drag us down a little bit. And they were critical of Paul because Paul, as we just read, is insistent about loving people and understanding people and meeting people where they were to help build them up. The Gnostics thought, why should we build them up? They ought to know better on their own. The Gnostics, and you can see how this is appealing. The Gnostics thought, hey, we know it. We've already got it. Why should we give room to people that don't know what we know? Why should we leave room for them to grow? They should know what, they should know better. They should read it themselves. They should automatically be on our level. Now, now you can, you understand that there are certain areas of life where it's hard to have patience for people. Politically, economically, socially, right? There's things that, that it's often hard to see. Hey, they're never going to get it. They don't want to get it. So why should we re- leave room for them to get it? And all by, you know, on top of that, why should we even have our doors open? Shouldn't we just kind of hunker down? And, and you think, what? They just started the church. He said, yeah, that's how quickly religion comes in and works against it. And again, Gnosticism was nothing more than an attempt by Satan to prevent, discourage, and stop evangelism. It was, it still is. And Gnosticism is alive and well in the church today. In churches where only those that look like us and think like us are welcome. And, and where people think, well, you've got to have this special knowledge. And if you don't have this special knowledge, well, you're not holy like me. And you're not spiritual like me. And, oh, if you really were spiritual, you would be doing this. And, you know, we could go into all different traditions that interpret this their own ways and, and, and you know, practice this their own ways. But there's plenty of people that say, oh, well, you don't know this or you, you can't do this or you're not that spiritual. Well, oh, I'm sorry, but you're just not on our level. I'm sorry. You know, glad to have have you but good luck you you see that Gnosticism it it doesn't allow for grace because it doesn't doesn't rely on grace now we will always be a church under my leadership we will always be and I believe most of you 99% of everybody that's ever walked in here has this same heart we will always be a church that relies on grace, extends grace, and leaves room for grace to do the work because we know that grace is what did the work in us. So we need to let grace do the work in others. We aren't going to be afraid to get our hands dirty. And, and if people say, oh, should they really be doing that? Let them ask that question. Should they really be you know, rubbing elbows with those people or you know, being around those people? or letting, Let them ask those questions. Because listen, our model is Jesus who went to where people were. He didn't demean them by gloating over them. He built them up. Listen, what we did the other night, and and this is a small thing, but what we did with Trunk or Treat and what other churches do with Trunk or Treat, that may seem like a complete waste of time when you see so many people come through that you'll never see again. But listen, that is the closest thing to Jesus' ministry that the church ever does. 
Jesus' ministry did not look like this in buildings with, with fancy pews and fancy carpet, you know, and, and nice controlled, climate controlled buildings with, with altars and, 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 you know, a worship team. That's not what Jesus' ministry looked like. Y'all know what it looked like. It was him going to where people were. He didn't just line up and say, hey, come on. He went to where they were. That's what the gospel does, right? That's what Jesus was all about. Luke chapter 6 says that, that Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. I mean, isn't that powerful? He came down with them. And who's them? People from all over Judea and even from Tyre and Sidon, which was some of the most sinful places around. It says that he came, all that came to hear him were healed of their diseases and many that were troubled with unclean spirits. I mean, he was surrounded by people that were sick and afflicted, that people thought were being judged for their sin, people that were demon-possessed. He's right in the middle of them. And look at how did they get healed? Not because they were good, but because power came out from him. So what's the hope for the world? Power coming out of him. And again, how is Jesus present in our world today? Through his body and who are his, what is his body? We, right? We are his body. Oh, but the religious leaders, they were critical of Jesus. Oh, this man, uh, this man receives and welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Oh, how dare you? Church, we could easily hide behind our knowledge and it'd be easy to do that. And it would, it's so tempting to do it in today's world because it would make us feel a lot better by not reaching people. It'd make us feel a lot better about the people that we don't reach when we try to reach them because, oh, they just don't know, they don't care. Why should we even try? Don't you see how that becomes the kind of the, the mentality of the church when we begin to convince ourselves? We use labels and we don't have to do anything evangelical because we're saved and they're lost and they, don't, they know better and they don't care and if they did, they would come so they don't. We observe their lifestyles and their voting habits and their spending habits and we think, oh, they're, they're in the mess that they got themselves in. So what should we care? We could do all those things and we would be right, we'd be right, we'd be right, but we'd also be wrong, wrong, wrong. Do you see? We'd be right, but we'd be wrong. Paul says to the Corinthians, especially those that are critical of him, those that claim to be smarter than him and more spiritual than him, he says, listen, y'all, I could be just like y'all and be holier than thou. I could be in my ivory tower and I could look down at the lost world and I could care less. But since I'm actually an apostle and I've actually seen Jesus, I built the church that you're trying to stop. I can't be careless. I could if I wanted to be, and, and, and I have more right than y'all do, but because I know what really is the bigger picture, I can't. I mean, isn't that powerful? He says, listen, I started this church. I started these churches. I know how important it is to continue to fan the flame. And isn't it true that if you trace this all back, every church was started because somebody shared Jesus with somebody who didn't know him and wasn't like him and needed grace to get to him? Right? Even if, you know, yeah, go back before the split and before the church planted. It all started because somebody shared Jesus with somebody that wasn't like them, wasn't anything, wasn't all, had, didn't have Jesus on their mind, and needed grace to get anywhere close to him. So who are we to seal the door shut because the mission is done, the world is too messy, we, or, we, or because we don't have to go? Listen, I hope this influences 
I hope this influences how, we've t- how we talk to and treat everyone in our sphere. I hope this makes us think twice about waving someone off or excusing ourselves from learning how to love somebody that's different than us. Paul says, I could, be, I could very easily not be married to my mission and could care nothing about the choices I make impacting others, but that would require, require me to completely disregard Jesus. Now, in verse, four, verse 8 through 14, we're not going to read these verses because they're kind of a separate message entirely. But Paul steps aside from this sermon and leaves some important truth behind because he wants to make sure he protects those that are in ministry professionally. And I know I'm in ministry, so of course I'm saying that, but y'all, y'all, y'all can read the text there and, and see this. Paul says, he's saying this to defend those in ministry and ensure that they're well compensated. He says, yeah, I know I've disregarded, I've laid aside my rights, but I am very much in defense of those who are in ministry full-time to be compensated for the ministry that they are doing. But he also says anyone who's in ministry, and that's all of us, anybody in ministry has to know that it's going to be an inconvenient and it's going to be an uncomfortable thing. It references Luke chapter 14 where Jesus says that we must bear our cross. We must count the cost if we're going to serve him. But Paul makes it very clear in these verses that those in ministry professionally, missionaries, evangelists, pastors, should be able to serve the Lord without worrying about their families. And, and again, I know this is kind of separate from our message, but I didn't want to skip over this because I felt like it, it's part of the text. Um, Paul here, and you can also read 1 Timothy chapter 5, where he says about elders or pastors, uh, they are worthy of double honor. That means twice as much as you think they are. Uh, He says the laborer is worthy of his wages. So I I wanted to bring that up because that's what Paul is talking about from verse 8 to verse 14. He says, even though I've laid aside any right I have as a minister, that doesn't mean I'm saying, hey, you should make those that serve your church do it for nothing. So that's what the whole passage is about. But let's close by beginning down in verse 15. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boast boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. I want you to focus in on verse number 16. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, he's not saying, woe is me if I don't just stand somewhere and preach. He's saying, woe is me if I don't make opportunities and build opportunities and form relationships in which I can get the gospel to people. Does that make sense? He's not saying, woe is me if I don't stand on the street corner every single day of my life and preach, preach, preach. He's saying, woe is me if I don't leverage my relationships and build relationships and get in people's lives to which I can preach the gospel. Now, as we wrap up, this goes back to that analogy of the soldier versus the doctor, setting fires versus putting out fires. How we view non-Christians reflects our hearts. How we respond to their sin, how we approach their sin, how we pray for them, how we treat them, how we coexist with them, all that reflects our approach. Ultimately, here's why this is something that we as Christians on a Wednesday night have to talk about. 
our priority and our, there's an imperative that hangs over all of us to figure out how to approach people who are not like us with the same gospel that saved us. Every single day there's an imperative hanging over you. How can you approach people who are not like you at all, but the gospel that saved you can save them? Our instinct is to interpret them, and this is very, very, very important, so let me say this slowly. Our instinct is to interpret them through who we are and what we know, and then attempt to talk to them. This is our instinct with lost people all the time. Maybe not you, but this is how I think all of us are kind of wired to do this, and we've all done this. When we're dealing with somebody who is completely different than us in their worldview, in their lifestyle, our instinct is to interpret them in their minds through what we know and who we are. And here's what happens. When we, talk, when we, when we take a person who is not a Christian, who is a slave to sin, and we assume that they know everything that we know. When we begin to think, why are they sinning? Why do they keep doing these things that are wrong? Why are they involved in these lifestyles that are wrong? When we assume that they know what we know, we become instantly impatient and judgmental, don't we? See, when we're looking at sinners and we think, why do they not know better? Why don't they live better? They should know this. Of course they know this. And they don't care if they don't know it. They just don't want to know it. When we begin to have those conversations, we become impatient with them. As in, if they don't respond as soon as I share it with them, they are not even hope. There's no hope and I'm not going to have any room to talk to them anymore. We lose every ounce of compassion for them and we cease to proclaim the good news to them. Happens every time. This is why when I was in high school and I learned that a classmate of mine was gay, my instinct was to tell him, and what I actually did, unfortunately, my instinct was to tell him, as soon as I found out, well, the Bible says that's wrong, and you're going to hell if you don't repent. That was my first conversation with the guy. <laughs> and I was so right. I mean, I was so right, and I was proud of it. But it was the wrong thing to do. I looked at this guy, and I put my thoughts in his head. And I judged him as if he knew what I knew. But guess what? He didn't know what I knew. Therefore, my words were worthless. Listen, rather than assuming that people who are lost know what we know and becoming impatient and judgmental, here's what we have to do instead. And you might disagree with me, but I'll show you why we have to do this. We assume they know nothing. You know what assume means? It means to adopt the mindset, to choose to see through this lens. We assume they know nothing. We assume the reason they are sinning is because they don't know any better. If you don't adopt this approach, you'll never learn how to effectively share the gospel with them. Assume they don't know any better. And you know why? This is how we should do it? Because it's how Jesus did it. What were Jesus's, what were some of his last words? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, but they knew Jesus. They literally were screaming, crucify him. They were, you know, literally foaming at the mouth. They voted to crucify you. They thought it was funny. They were mocking you. They were laughing at you. They were insulting you. They knew what they were doing. But what did Jesus do on the cross? He assumed that they did not know what they were doing. You know what that tells me? If we don't know Jesus, we don't know any better.
And, that, and what's so tragic is religion convinces us that we know better, and we're the reason we do better. But that's just robbing Jesus of the glory that he deserves. Because why do we know better? Why do we do better? Because the grace of Jesus made us better. Right? Let's not take credit for what is not even of us. Let's make sure that we give it to Jesus because he's the one that saves people. He's the one that saved us. Let's make sure that we proclaim his message to people so that we don't assume they know anything. We assume they know nothing because what did Jesus do on the cross? He assumed they did not know what they were doing even though it looked really, really, really like they knew what he was, they were doing. Takes a lot of humility to do that, doesn't it? There's something in us that doesn't want to do that because we think, oh, I can't do that. Because that's religion trying to get you to take credit for the grace that saved you, that saved me. So our approach, our approach is view them, treat them, love them, serve them like Jesus would. And listen to how Paul wraps this up and you'll see all this come together. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews I become as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those without the law as without the law. Not being without law towards God, but the, under the law towards Christ. That I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I become as the weak. That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might, by all means, save some. I do this for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. Do you, do you see what he's saying? I become all things. We don't assume people are on our level. We go to their level. Now let me make, make this very clear so you don't mishear me. We don't compromise. We don't apologize for God's word. We don't partake in the sin. We remember what it's like to not know Jesus. But let me just say this. For a lot of us, we don't remember what that's like because we've known Jesus so long, right? And it's hard to get out of that mentality. But let's not be sanctimonious. We know what it's like to not live for Jesus because we've got those same temptations in our heart that say every single day, don't live for Jesus. He just bails us out. He just covers our sin up and makes us look like we are living pretty good. Remember, we're dealing with people who are different than us. Just remember that they may be different in their actions, but they're not different in their nature. We share that same simple nature. We share, we come from that same lost place. So imagine what it's like to be lost without Jesus, understand what he has done for you. Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? He didn't just imagine it, he embraced it. And again, we can't do that, he did it for us. We show them Jesus. We show them that Jesus gave us meaning, the world couldn't. We show them that Jesus redeemed us from what this world was taking from us. And, and, and here's the, really the, 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 makes the, I think, the icing on the cake that makes it all come together. Back to the feet washing thing. People by nature present strength. People by nature project this idea that they don't need God and they don't want God. Lost people do it more than anyone because, of course, they have no relationship with them. When we serve them and we wash their feet, they reveal their greatest weaknesses to us 
as we serve them. And this is the part that so many Christians never get to. So here's what the commandment is. Serve them until their wounds are exposed. Do you hear me there? Serve them and have a relationship with them and love them until you get them to realize they are as sinful as you once were. You serve them until their wounds are exposed. And you stay until the opportunity to give them Jesus and heal them appears. Do you see why we never make it this far? Do you see why we never get to this point where people with, that are so lost and so far that we give up on? Because we don't ever do. What did Paul say? I've become a servant to all. Serve them until their wounds are exposed. And listen, this takes, it takes a while. Serve them until they give you the opportunity to share them, share Jesus with them. We'll never get the chance if we aren't willing to serve them like Jesus did. And if we aren't willing to serve, then we aren't passionate about the gospel. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receive the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Not Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, for we do it for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I discipline my body and bring it to subjection, lest I have preached to others. Lest when I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul says there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. The right way is through serving. Church, I think it's time we consider what we are driven by and motivated by and hear this call to preach the gospel and learn this approach at sharing the gospel. I don't think there's a text that makes it more clear. And I think this is one of the most ignored texts in the whole Bible. And it's why our modern church does not know how to reach lost people because we don't know how to even get an opportunity to share Jesus with them. We shout it from the rooftops and we, want, we say, well, you see, they don't, they don't care. And maybe they don't, maybe they don't. Jesus washed Judas' feet, right? That's how far he was willing to serve somebody that had already made his mind up. Woe to us if we don't preach. Shame on us if we don't serve. Because serving is the pathway. It's the pathway to sharing. And seeing people reveal their need and embrace their Savior, it is the necessity. So, 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 it is the winsome approach it is this winsome approach that will enable us to win some and maybe most with the same grace that won us. This is what it means to be winsome, to be willing to serve people so that the gospel has the opportunity to save people. It may not be a very popular message. It may not be the most uh, obvious message, but it's one that I have given myself to. And I will live my life out trying my best to embody what Paul has taught us about in order to save some, to save some. Because guess what? That's how you and I were saved. Church, I know that was a little bit long tonight. Thank you all for being patient with me. Thank you for hearing God's word. Let us do our best to apply it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for letting us come into your house tonight. Thank you for your people that love you and, and they care about people. They care about the world that is lost. And they're here tonight on a Wednesday because they want to reach people and they want to see their loved ones saved. And maybe this has showed them how they might get that opportunity to do it. 
Lord, I pray you might would stir our hearts, that you might would give us the confidence to stick with this and, and, and the dedication to stay focused, to serve, so that we might see some be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name.